Hello, and welcome to the all-new Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles, literary director here at the bookshop. If you enjoy these conversations and would like to spend even more of 2022 at Kilometre Zero in Paris, you can now subscribe for just three euros a month. For that, you'll get regular bonus episodes, hand-picked classic interviews from our archives, as well as early access to complete chapters from friends of Shakespeare and Company, Read Ulysses. You can now sign up directly in Apple Podcasts or for users of all other podcast apps through Patreon. Links to both are available in the show notes. All money raised through these subscriptions goes to supporting Friends of Shakespeare and Company, the bookshop's non-profit, created to fund our non-commercial activities, from the Upstairs Reading Library to the Writers in Residence programme to our charitable collaborations and our free events. We're very grateful for your support. There can be something impenetrable about a great work of literature. It's apparent perfection almost making readers feel as if the book appeared fully formed, complete, vacuum-sealed from the macro and micro-events of the world into which it arrives. And yet, as Kevin Birmingham showed with his first literary biography, The Most Dangerous Book, The Battle for James Joyce's Ulysses, the story behind the writing and publication of a masterpiece, when told well, can in fact deeply enrich the reader's experience and understanding of the work. Now he's done it again. For in The Sinner and the Saint, Kevin Birmingham deftly unpicks the personal, societal, historical and philosophical forces that led Fyodor Dostoevsky, isolated, indebted, beset by epileptic seizures, to take up his pen in the summer of 1865 and begin writing Crime and Punishment. A work that will cause a sensation on his publication and lead to a reflaring of Dostoevsky's flagging literary star and which would continue to bewitch readers for more than a century and a half and counting. However, and crucially, The Sinner and the Saint is about two men. I hesitate to say two artists, not just one. For as Kevin Birmingham shows, it's impossible to understand the invention of Raskolnikov without also getting to grips with the mind of a French murderer poet who charmed and outraged Parisian society in almost equal measure three decades earlier. That man was the notorious Pierre-François Lassenaire. The Sinner and the Saint is not only a gripping and revelatory read, but it also tackles subjects such as misinformation, nationalism and the pull between East and West that remain worryingly pressing in our own epoch. All of which is why I'm thrilled to be speaking to Kevin Birmingham today. Kevin, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Adam. I'm happy to be here. We're really delighted to to have you with us, uh, not least because we're massive fans of um, of the most dangerous book at, uh, <laughs> at Shakespeare and Company, and uh, and we're we're thrilled to, to to receive copies of the Sinner and the Saint. Um, I think where I'd like to begin um, this conversation is with our two protagonists. Um, so that was one thing that really surprised me when I when I started reading. I had never heard of uh, Pierre Francois Lassenaire. Um, and uh, having spoken with um, with French friends, it seems that he is sort of sort of a, a mythic figure to French people, but they but he sort of retreated a little bit from uh, from popular culture. So a lot of people will be familiar with the name, but not be so familiar with his story. Um, so I'd be curious to know in in the conception of this book, when. Did it come about that you realized that it wasn't going to be a book about Dostoevsky or it wasn't going to be a book about Lassenaire, but it was going to be a book about these two men? Well, uh, for a long time, I've wanted to write about Dostoevsky, but the problem was that I, it was difficult for me to figure out uh, a unique angle on Dostoevsky to say something about the writer that hadn't been said before. Mm-hmm. Part of why I wanted to write about Dostoevsky is not only because his, his fiction is so uh, durable, 
but because he had an incredible life, because he was uh, imprisoned uh, at the age of 28, he was exiled to Siberia, he was nearly killed, he uh, burst back onto the scene to have uh, his own, uh, you know, a resurrection of his own literary career. And virtually everything that we still read of Dostoevsky was written after that period of time that he spent uh, in Siberia. There's a very large magisterial uh, biography of Dostoevsky by Joseph Frank. It's five volumes. It's probably about 2,000 pages long. And I was reading that biography, and there was effectively one or two paragraphs that just happened to mention that one of the inspirations for Crime and Punishment was a French murderer by the name of Lassenaire. Mm -hmm. And uh, I became intrigued by that. And when I did just a little bit of digging, the first thing I noticed was that uh, in between his uh, trials and his execution, he was guillotined in mm -hmm. 1835, he wrote his own memoirs, or he was mm -hmm. rushing as quickly as possible to write his own memoirs before his beheading. And I took a look at those memoirs, and I started to take a look at the life surrounding him and realized that you know, there could be a great two-part story. This is basically The Sinner and the Saint, my book, is really a, a narrative account of a young writer. And it begins when Dostoevsky is uh, in his teenage years, um, who is trying to become a writer and struggling to become a writer because he does not come from a family of means. Mm -hmm. Most Russian writers at the time were independently wealthy and so didn't need to pay the bills in order to be a writer. But Dostoevsky though he was a noble, was a, uh, uh, a noble of uh, uncertain means. And he was effectively an orphan by the age of um, uh, 17, I believe. Uh, both of his parents uh, had died. I think we should just say at this point, one thing that's very fascinating when uh, learning about Russian society at the time is that you could be a noble... You know, the idea of being a noble is very different to the idea we might have today of being mm. part of the nobility. Like this, the one thing you described really well is how the the whole state structure of the state was essentially right. div dividing people into ranks, and Dostoevsky was almost the lowest rank right. of nobility that you could be. Yeah, it's you know, in order to understand the challenges that Dostoevsky underwent, you have to have a, a pretty good understanding of his environment and. Mm. You know, at the time, we're talking about the the 1830s and 1840s as he's coming of age. Uh, it's a strictly regimented society, a society presided over by a czar who had a love for the military, a mm -hmm. love for order, and who wanted to create a sense of order in his society. There was not a fabulous amount of wealth in Russian society. And so in order to motivate people to work for the government to work for the czar, instead of money, the uh, uh, the payment was in prestige, mm. uh, was in social standing. And there was a strict uh, uh, table of ranks. There are 14 ranks. And you knew exactly where you were on this table, and you compared yourself to other people. That table of ranks was starting to fade away as Russia became more and more modern, but it was still, in the 1840s, as Dostoevsky is, is just coming of age, is still very much... Uh, a presence for him. Mm -hmm. And there's an insecurity that we can see in Dostoevsky because he has this, you know, liminal position, like just hanging onto the edge of the, the ranks of the nobility. And it's similar insecurity that we can see in James Joyce. And it's, mm -hmm. I think, 
one of the things that makes his writing so intense and what made him work so feverishly on on his on his books on his novels it's because he wanted to make a name for himself he knew he was giving up um an important status for his family by not being mm. a uh, an engineer for the military. Mm. That's what yeah, he was trained yeah. as, and to be a novelist at the time was not uh, a respected. Yes, <laughs> probably never been a respected <laughs> profession, but especially not then. And it was also not a money making profession, mm. as it's the same way it is now for the most part. And so he was taking on an incredible risk, and he did it because he wanted to have a a, a deep sense of of a calling. So it's about. Mm. It's my book is about the you know Dostoevsky as a young writer coming of age, and it goes back and forth between his story and the story of Lassenaire, who mm-hmm. in uh, the 1830s uh, in in Paris and in France in general had his own uh, uh, insecurities and mm-hmm. was a, a member of uh, the, the bourgeoisie, but mm-hmm. the family had lost its fortune before he had come of age, and so. Uh, uh, in most respects, he is not like Dostoevsky, though Dostoevsky did read about Lassenaire's trial and became mm-hmm. captivated by it and thought, you know, there's something in this story that I think can speak to what's happening in Russia at the time mm-hmm. and could very well speak to what's happening um, uh, in our society. Yeah. One thing about uh, Dostoevsky, when he encountered the story of Lassenaire's trial, because uh, it, I, sh- I suppose it should be made clear that they were not contemporaries. This was not something that was happening right. in France at the time that Dostoevsky right. encountered it. So Lessoner, as you said, was guillotined in um, 1835. And Dostoevsky was born in, was it 1821? Yeah. Something like that. So he was right. would have only been 14 at the end of Lessoner's life. Yeah. But when he encounters a story, and we'll come to this a little bit later, I think, but when he's setting up a journal with his brother, right. all of these other factors are sort of coming together for it to be a very ripe moment for Dostoevsky to uh, to, to encounter this this story right. of this this French murderer. So in the 1860s, it's really 1865 that the crime and punishment starts to get going, mm. and the 1860s in Russia was a very turbulent time. Mm. Russia was starting to liberalize under uh, the new czar, but it wasn't liberalizing fast enough, and it was. Um, it was causing an even greater outcry among a growing liberal class mm-hmm. who uh, of people in, in Russia at the time. Uh, there were a lot of Russian radicals who were sprouting up at the time who mm-hmm. referred to themselves as nihilists. Mm-hmm. And uh, the epithet was originally meant as an insult, but it was taken on as a, uh, a badge of honor. Mm-hmm. And the nothing of nihilism was really the nothing of believing in nothing, where mm-hmm. nothing is sacred, where everything that underpins society is questionable. It can all be wiped away Mm -hmm. if it's unjust. So that meant the czar could be wiped away or should be wiped away. The the state religion should be wiped away. The landowning class should be wiped away. Private property potentially should be wiped away. So there were a group of young radicals who wanted to start uh, afresh. Mm -hmm. And when Dostoevsky thought about them, he could see his younger self in them. Mm-hmm. That, you know, what they wanted for Russia was noble. They wanted Russia to be a better place. They wanted it to be a more just place. When Dostoevsky was in his 20s, he wanted Russia to be a better place. And the, his way of doing it was to uh, to be opposed to serfdom. Mm-hmm. 
the imposed to serfdom at the time was was not at all acceptable because the entire empire was based upon serfdom. It was an agricultural empire. There was not very much industry at the time. And that's why Dostoevsky was arrested by the Tsar's men and why he was eventually uh, exiled to Siberia. By, by the 1860s, he was a bit more conservative and was able to see the folly of his ways and was able to see how dangerous it is to try to start from scratch, to mm-hmm. remake society um, from the ground up. Mm-hmm. When he looked at Lassenaire's story in 1861, what he saw was someone who claimed to be murdering for the benefit of society, mm-hmm. right? That uh, the trouble of France at the time was uh, the trouble of inequality, mm-hmm. the trouble of the wealthy versus the poor, and the impoverished were, were becoming uh, worse and worse off, and the wealthy were becoming richer and richer. The uh, ultimate aim of his scheme was to rob banks, not mm-hmm. by storming the vaults, but by robbing their collection clerks. And when he was finally arrested for his crimes, and when he wrote his memoirs, he was basically presenting himself as this Robin Hood figure. Mm-hmm. I come to preach the religion of fear to the rich because the religion of love has no power over their hearts. That's one of the, the, the statements, <laughs> old statements that Lassiner makes in his, uh, in his memoirs. And so in some way, he did become a bit of a folk hero among some people who saw him as someone who was taking an axe, not to an individual, but to a society. When Dostoevsky read about this, he saw through all of that. What he basically saw was someone who claims to be killing for ideological purposes, but who really wants to kill out of a pleasure for destruction mm-hmm. and a pleasure for self-destruction. Mm-hmm. And he thought that that perverse pleasure, if you're a Dostoevsky reader, you're familiar with with this type of perversity, that there is an allure and a pleasure to destruction, just sheer destruction mm-hmm. that is within possibly all of us, or at least a lot of us, and that it lurks in society in general. And he wanted to draw that out in Raskolnikov, his murderer, and he wanted people to see that you know, the pleasure of being a radical in Russia in the 1860 had that undercurrent of sheer destruction. Mm-hmm. That yes, they did want Russia to be a more just place, but there was also pleasure in just taking an axe to czarism as a whole. Yeah, because when you talk about uh, Dostoevsky as a as a young radical, I mean his radicalism in many ways was quite different from this kind of radicalism. So as part of right. the uh, Petrushevsky circle, um, right. there's this was a sort of a group of uh, a group of thinkers, a group of writers, and whose ideas seem to be broadly centered on um, a sort of form of utopian socialism, a kind of French right. form yes. of utopian socialism, right. um, which was sort of about remaking society, but essentially remaking it uh, relatively harmoniously. It wasn't about sort of destroying everything and um and then build building it up again where do you think dostoevsky's obsession with this kind of destructive urge came from was it in part during his imprisonment when he got a chance to spend time and get to know people who had killed other people who had sort of uh, committed yeah. crimes yeah. not of the political nature like him but of more sort of let's say brute or animal nature mm-hmm. i think it was become becoming clearer to him in Siberia, mm-hmm. uh, as you say, partly because he is effectively imprisoned with 
serious criminals, including many murderers, and he was eager to hear their stories. Mm -hmm. Dostoevsky was suffering from epilepsy, and so he was hospitalized mm -hmm. repeatedly in uh, Siberia and you know after Siberia. And in the hospital, the you know the rules were a little bit more lax. There were more opportunities to simply chat with people uh, after hours and he took that opportunity to get the stories of the murderers surrounding him as much as possible. And there were, the more murderers you talk to, the more motives you'll get for why they did what they did. Sometimes it's revenge. Sometimes it's for a trifling amount of money. Sometimes it's uh, out of what he would, what Dostoevsky called a, a convulsion, like a, just a convulsive act. And that's the sort of impulse that he started to seize upon when he was looking for the common thread mm -hmm. among all these different murderers is he could see that, you know, when you are down and out, when uh, the world seems to be bearing up against you, there can be this sense of freedom, even if it's just for a second in lashing out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he compared that freedom to the freedom of, of jumping off of a, a tower, mm -hmm. right? That before you can feel gravity take hold, you might feel free. There's a sense of exhilaration. And ultimately, you know it's the exhilaration of, of self-destruction. Mm -hmm. But the impulse for a sense of freedom is so strong in people that they're willing to destroy themselves for mm -hmm. it. And the, you know, the criminals probably knew, according to Dostoevsky, that they were going to be imprisoned, but mm -hmm. they ultimately didn't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's one thing, because I guess in a sense, Dostoevsky's um, Dostoevsky was different from these criminals in as much as I suppose political prisoners maybe imagine they might be in prison, but also don't necessarily see themselves as committing a crime. Mm -hmm. Whereas yes. I suppose sort of somebody who commits murder knows they are committing a crime mm -hmm. and therefore sort of Dostoevsky received the punishment, perhaps in a certain way, consider himself not necessarily a criminal, but spent time alongside people yes. who he were being punished for... For, for different reasons. He never thought that what he did was wrong. Mm -hmm. He basically wanted to end serfdom. Yeah. But he did know that he was breaking the czar's law. Mm -hmm. And what he reproached himself for was throwing his life away. And so as he's talking to these other criminals and sort of investigating their own sense of destruction and self-destruction, he couldn't help but notice that he was effectively destroying his own life or gambling mm. with his own life. Mm. <laughs> and, the, and uh, you know, I say that pointedly because one of the heartbreaking things about the realization that you are potentially a self-destructive person is that even when you realize it, it doesn't make you any less self-destructive. So mm. when Dostoevsky bursts back onto the literary scene, comes back to St. Petersburg in 1860... Uh, he has to restart his life all over again, but then he mm. becomes addicted to gambling. And so mm. he is effectively ruining his life over and over again. He thinks he's going to to be fabulously wealthy. He's going to um, find a system whereby he will definitely beat a casino at roulette, which you definitely cannot do. <laughs> and yet he did it over and over again. And it's this heartbreaking element of Dostoevsky's life that he kept trying to destroy himself. He was never violent. That was mm. not his his form of destruction, but that's how it, it made its, its uh, appearance in his own life.
Yeah. One thing that becomes very clear as you as you read the book, and this is, comes through in your in your descriptions, is that there is certainly a sort of a Venn diagram, if you like, between the sensation of gambling and putting everything on the line, the sensation right. of perhaps committing murder, and or particularly as Dostoevsky was trying to think himself into what that could mean, what that could feel like. You, you talked about mm -hmm. it like being on the cliff edge, something like that, right. in a sense, that right. could be applied to to gambling and to to this act. And also the third circle in this Venn diagram, which you've already mentioned, is the feeling of just being on the edge of an epileptic seizure, in fact. That sort yeah. of sense of sort of yeah. some some sort of uh the, the ground going out from under your feet some sort of right. ecstasy and despair and right. um how much do you think dostoevsky's epilepsy uh sort of fed into his fascination with um with the murderous act uh well so there um it's it's not easy to tell there is mm -hmm. one of the things that we know about epilepsy now that we didn't know about it um 20 or 30 years ago is uh, how how epilepsy affects the brain and how the sensations just before an epileptic seizure uh, can be felt by someone, by particular sufferers of temporal lobe epilepsy. Mm -hmm. So uh, Dostoevsky had what's referred to as uh, an ecstatic aura. So sometimes in the moments just before a, uh, a seizure, he would feel this sense of sheer bliss. Sometimes mm -hmm. he described it as being like heaven and earth united. He thought that time had just fallen away. He compared it to, uh, there's a myth about, uh, about Muhammad, the prophet Muhammad, um, that uh, he's whisked away to see all of the kingdoms of Allah in the time that it takes for a drop of water to uh, fall from a jug and, and hit the ground. And Dostoevsky you know, described his feeling as being similar to that, that there's this brief moment of bliss before the seizure takes hold and he loses consciousness mm -hmm. completely. And you know, we often think of Dostoevsky as a dour person, someone who mm -hmm. is, is morose. But the truth is a little bit more complicated than that. He felt bliss in a way that few of us, maybe none of us ever really would. And so in the last you know, couple of decades, you know, several decades ago, people didn't even think of the ecstatic aura as actually being a, a, a real thing. Neuroscientists now know that it is true. And I think I've settled on that, the truth of that, and have investigated it pretty um, in, in quite a, a, a bit of detail. And if you have these temporal lobe seizures over and over again, one of the things that can happen is that you can uh, have a lot of the traits that Dostoevsky exhibited himself. One of them is cogitating over and over again about philosophical and religious um, ideas. Mm -hmm. You can develop hypergraphia, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you, the, the compulsion to just write voluminously. I'm not necessarily saying that Dostoevsky had that, but... Uh, we can see uh, some of these things happening. Uh, also, you can become more susceptible to uh, compulsive behaviors, and mm -hmm. gambling is is a good example of that. There is research done about how temporal lobe epilepsy can trigger um, gambling behaviors, mm -hmm. and so it's possible that Dostoevsky uh, felt that. Whether or not it's related to his interest in in murder, in particular, is maybe a little bit more difficult to say. But uh, I think what is somewhat easy for us to say is that 
that self-destructive urge and the the sense of losing control of, of your own body that you get with epilepsy was joined with the, the feeling of freedom and, and release for him. Mm-hmm. And that was true both in a seizure and in gambling. You know, he was writing The Gambler, and there's really wonderful scenes. If you haven't read The Gambler, uh, you should definitely read it. It's very short. It's a novella. Uh, but they're really excellent scenes about the feeling of gambling. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that people don't think about with gambling is that the gambler doesn't just have a pleasure in winning. There's uh-huh. a perverse pleasure in losing. Like mm-hmm. losing everything also gives you this rush of adrenaline. And it's that rush of adrenaline that the gambler is is hooked on. Mm-hmm. And so you, in a way, you sort of win no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. It's um, the, the reason that the gambler is... Uh is a novella um, we discover uh, as as we're uh, as we're as, as we're reading the sinner and the saint. I'm not sure I necessarily want to give it away to uh, yeah. to our listeners because it's quite um, there's, there's something so uh, so fascinating about the conditions under which this uh, this book yeah. finally yeah. comes to to pass. But you mentioned um, the, about one uh, potential side effect of epilepsy being this kind of being attracted to uh, or maybe perhaps unnaturally attracted to ideas. Mm. Um, but you also write in the book that this is something which was perhaps taking place on a kind of societal level in Europe generally mm-hmm. at the time, mm-hmm. because yeah. this was a time when, um, like this was, in, uh, this was the beginning of the age of mass media, I guess, sort of newspapers were yeah. uh, being printed quicker and being distributed more widely. Uh, populations were becoming more literate. Um, right. And um, I mean, Russia didn't seem to... Uh, you know, it's Russia, the, the the newspaper industry seemed to be a little bit more controlled, a little bit more censored than what was um, what was developing in Europe. But still, um, we get a sense that whether in in Russia or Europe, these new conditions gave rise to a sort of a circulation of ideas and a population yeah. that was kind of, <clears throat> in a sense, on the lookout for the big philosophical idea in a way that perhaps they hadn't pre um, the arrival of this kind of technology. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way of putting it. And I think it, two things are happening. One is a change that's beginning to happen across all of Europe. And another is uh, about what's happening in Russia in particular. Mm-hmm. And in Europe, the background to a lot of what's going on in terms of the importance of ideas is basically the 1848 revolutions uh, that begin on the streets of Paris, but then spread to all across Europe, to virtually every capital mm-hmm. uh, of Europe at the time. And you know the revolutions were effectively uh, a uprising, popular uprising against the status quo. And what that meant, though, was trying to reformulate the way society worked, um, not necessarily from scratch, but just to do things very differently. And in order to have some sort of a guide for how to do things differently, you needed to have some thinkers who were going to guide you. So mm-hmm. the more that people were militating against uh, the monarchs of uh, their own nations, the more they had to think about what would replace them, how you would reshape society. And the importance of those ideas were starting to extend beyond just the leaders of these revolutions, but to the participants in general. Mm-hmm. And as you say, it's it, you know the circulation of ideas and the growth of literacy at the time helped to take that that ownership of ideas um, uh, even further uh, Mm. in Europe. In Russia in particular, 
you know, St. Petersburg was one of the only European capitals that, that did not experience the revolution. And the czar's grip over his country at the time was, was, much, uh, was much stronger. If you were a Russian who wanted to be political in the 1850s or 1860s, you really couldn't do it. And so instead of being overtly political, the way you would be a quote unquote citizen for your country was to write novels, Mm. right? That was one important way of doing it. And so when you think about it, the golden age of, of Russian literature, we're talking about Dostoevsky, we're talking about Tolstoy, Turgenev, these novels ultimately came out of the political oppression of mm. the time. A lot of that energy that couldn't go into politics was channeled into art and literature because it was their way of speaking to uh, the people in general and a way for them to try to guide what the future of the country would be. Part of mm. the reason why Dostoevsky was captivated by Lassenaire's story is because Russians in general looked to France as being the torchbearers for Europe as a whole, mm-hmm. and that the direction in which France was going would potentially be a signal for where Russia would go if Russia were to become more Western-oriented. Mm-hmm. So at the time, in the 1860s, there was a big debate between people who wanted to be more like France, more Western, and people who wanted to be more Slavic, more mm-hmm. uh, traditional in, in a certain sense. And these camps were pulling further and further apart. And so for Dostoevsky to look not just at any murderer, but at a French murderer was mm-hmm. a little bit of a, a warning sign. Like, look, if we care too much just about politics, mm-hmm. about ideas, if we try to pretend to change the world from the top down, it's going to be very problematic. For Dostoevsky, he always wanted uh, the ideas to be united with specific feelings for specific people. Mm. And that's why you know, writing a novel is a, a great rejoinder to a philosophical argument. Because philosophy, you know, in general, not all the time, but in general, is thinking in large abstractions. Mm-hmm. And what Dostoevsky wanted to do was to say, okay, well, if you think it's good to kill a pawnbroker, because it's a pawnbroker who dies in crime and punishment, who gets murdered along with her sister, you would kill a pawnbroker because a pawnbroker is uh, leeching off of uh, poor people, people who mm-hmm. really can afford to pay exorbitant interest the least, mm-hmm. and you know, therefore just an awful person. If you could kill a pawnbroker, take her money and then use that money for something good. That in theory was, was what would make you um, a good person. Mm -hmm. But Dostoevsky wanted us to be hovering over Raskolnikov's shoulder as he has this ax hidden in his uh, coat, as he walks up the stairwell, as he pulls the door open and the pawnbroker, this very specific woman that we can see very clearly. We see a comb in her hair. She has a thin, neck and she has twiggy legs and what she sounds like and what she looks like he has to kill a person Mm -hmm. and a novel is a great reminder of the importance of individual people and what it means to actually do something like that Mm -hmm. and then of course there's the problem of things going wrong right your ideas are never actually going to work the way you think they will and so what happens raskolnikov goes into the pawnbroker's bedroom, starts rifling through the items in her chest, 
and he hears someone he goes out into the to the main room and there is the pawnbroker's sister and now he has to kill her as well and uh and i guess yeah that's a sort of the moment the the first moment where the plan starts to starts unravel. to unravel yeah right right you, you said that like one of the um ways that people were able to sort of engage with philosophical ideas was through through the novel uh and it struck me that that was perhaps one thing that was particularly radical about crime and punishment was that it it wasn't a sort of novel of ideas which, which perhaps in a way a lot of the sort of the the other russian novelists were were producing at a time i mean that's a very sort of reductive reductionist way to, to talk mm -hmm. about them but like it, it feels like with crime and punishment that it's really pushing against that almost as sort of like you know a novel it's the place not so much a place in which ideas can be sort of unveiled but the way that they can mm, essentially right. be deconstructed within the human psyche yeah i mean i think you know my way of thinking about it is that i, I think most people when they think about dostoevsky as a novelist think of him as beginning with a, a large idea and then formulating a story that that fits into that idea or that mm -hmm. exemplifies some sort of uh, lesson that he wants us to learn. But, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do in my book is to really try to capture the creative process for Dostoevsky, the mm -hmm. same way that, you know, I do for James Joyce. I think, you know, it's, it's not the end result of a masterpiece that interests me. It's how that masterpiece comes to be. Mm -hmm. And when we were lucky enough to have multiple notebooks that mm -hmm. Dostoevsky used to work on when he was writing his, his first drafts for Crime and Punishment, and so we can see how the novel was forming underneath uh, his, his hand. And what we know, not only from these notebooks, but from Dostoevsky's notebooks in general, is that he liked really to work from the ground up. He mm -hmm. liked, he was uh, excellent with voices. He heard voices. Those voices started to come alive. There were so many details that make their way into the end of Crime and Punishment that were there from the very, very beginning, mm -hmm. like the disheveled top hat that mm -hmm. uh, Raskolnikov has. And the disheveled top hat is a nod to Lassenaire because Lassenaire wore a top hat as well, and his was also disheveled. And it's a symbol for a... Um, the, the bourgeoisie gone wrong, mm -hmm. a uh, wealth that had lost its way. And uh, uh, he wanted that there. He saw it, Dostoevsky saw renditions of that top hat in the version of the article that he read mm -hmm. because it was an illustrated article about, about, uh, about Lassenaire's crime spree. And Dostoevsky also drew little pictures in all of his notebooks. You can just Google, you know, Dostoevsky notebooks and you'll find all these wonderful uh, drawings because he was trained as a draftsman. So he was mm -hmm. actually a pretty good uh, artist. Um, you can actually see there are a couple of images of, uh, of Raskolnikov. He has a receding hairline, despite the fact that he's very young. And I believe he has that receding hairline because Lassenaire had that receding mm -hmm. hairline because he was young. So it's a prominent forehead. You're supposedly a thinker. And uh, so there are these, these just little tiny things that he knows he wants uh, to have in his novel. And it's almost as if the, the details of, of St. Petersburg, the, not only the fog, but the dust, the construction, the canals, those have to be there first. Mm -hmm. and whatever ideas he's going to have in the novel can also come and it's important for them to be there, but they need to start from the bottom up.
And that was one thing that really fascinated me and uh, was this, your descriptions of his notebooks, actually, because um, I think that it's definitely right how you just described it, that we, we think of Dostoevsky perhaps, I think, wrongly of somebody who, who has, a, has a lesson to, um, mm-hmm. to, to give us. And we'll come on uh, in a moment to um, the fact that you, you said that the kind of the, the lesson a lot of people take from Crime and Punishment, which I confess I took from it uh, yeah. when I first read it, of like <laughs> this kind of um, sort of religious conversion at the end is perhaps right. Not, um, right. not really the, the, the correct reading of, um, of the book. But, but the notebooks, the thing that really fascinated me was this idea of the kind of the chaos and the, the also, but also the, the, the sketches, like the idea that um, I think there's a moment where you talk about like he actually sort of draws a kind of striding Raskolnikov, mm-hmm, sort yeah. of essentially almost emerging from uh, yeah. from from the words. It just sounds like an absolutely compelling experience, kind of going through. Yeah, these, he has a, he has a sort of uh, there's a you know a, a word that Raskolnikov likes to use to describe you know a combination of ideas and feelings, mm. and that for him it's an it's important to have an idea feeling mm-hmm. rather than just an idea. It needs to be. You know, you know, our ideas need to be united with some uh, innate feeling for people, an innate feeling for goodness. And where Raskolnikov goes wrong is that, you know, in the very early scenes of Crime and Punishment, we actually do see these glimmers of empathy and feeling for other people, right? There's a uh, a young woman on the street who's who's drunk and she's being pursued by a lecherous man. And he immediately goes to her rescue. He really does just want to help individual people. But the Raskolnikov that is just about to murder someone is a Raskolnikov who's retreating to his garret of a room. He's sort of alone mm-hmm. by himself with his thoughts. And that's where people start to go wrong. And so, you know, if uh, there's not one particular lesson of, of crime mm-hmm. and punishment, but uh, one of the things that Dostoevsky thought was important you know, in general throughout his career was to make sure that you never lose feelings for individuals, mm-hmm. that you don't let your ideology cloud the fact that whatever happens with you in particular or with the state in general is something that's going to happen for many, many individuals, not just a crowd of people. One thing that also seems to come become clear from the notebooks is that it took Dostoevsky it took Dostoevsky a while to um, arrive at the correct point of view for him to tell the story that right. he wanted to right. tell. So you sort of, earlier you described <clears throat> us as essentially being on Raskolnikov's yeah. shoulder, which I think yeah. in sort of creative writing classes, they might call the kind of close third person yeah, that's right. perspective. Right. Um, <clears throat> do you it, think, um, I mean, you're somebody who's written on uh, on James Joyce and sort of, of so obviously a very... Um, comfortable sort of looking at sort of stylistic innovation and, and 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 that sort of element of a text do you think dostoevsky with crime and punishment was kind of breaking the codes and innovating to the extent that joyce did with ulysses was it as new as what joyce was doing i th- i think dostoevsky is an important stepping stone to a writer like joyce mm-hmm. because i think that dostoevsky's way of rendering consciousness is necessary for us to have before we can get to modernist experimentation. Mm. In the same way that uh, Jane Austen and free and direct discourse is necessary to have before we, you know, we get to stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, the the counterintuitive thing that Dostoevsky realized as he was writing *Crime and Punishment* 
is something that you said, which is that the very early drafts of crime and punishment were meant to be a confession, a first person confession. Mm -hmm. And he imagined that confession in a couple of different ways. He would either be uh, uh, on a witness stand at his own trial, or it would be a notebook confession. Mm -hmm. And he found it very challenging to do that. And the counterintuitive discovery was that, you know, you can actually get closer to someone's consciousness by taking a step away from it, by not mm -hmm. trying to render it in the first person. Because if you render it in the first person, you're always going to be seeing the individual the way he wants to present himself, mm -hmm. the way he is telling his own story after the fact. Instead, what you want is to be able to sort of hover over his shoulder and be able to see things as they're happening while also seeing them through the individual's perspective. Mm -hmm. And so one particular problem that Dostoevsky confronted is that he knew that Raskolnikov needed to be confused at certain points. And if it's a confession after the fact, that confusion is not really going to be rendered mm -hmm. you know, precisely. But if we can be hovering over his shoulder and sort of borrow the confusion a little bit, the way that you know uh, Jane Austen might might borrow a voice, mm -hmm. right, in in some of her novels, um, that allows us to live within that confusion while also having one foot in the external reality. There are several mm -hmm. moments where something happens in *Crime and Punishment*, and then we find out after the fact that, that was a dream or mm -hmm. it was a uh, hallucination. Dostoevsky wants us to feel all those things because he wants us to experience the confusion and, and fear, the heart pounding as someone knocks on the door while mm -hmm. he's still inside with the corpses. Uh, all those things need to happen. So we borrow Raskolnikov's perspective just for a moment and then, and then pull back out. Mm -hmm. and Ulysses does that you know, in about 20 different ways. And um, I think someone needed to do it in just one way in order uh -huh. for Joyce to be able to decide, I'm going to step back and do it every way that it's ever been done before. And that's part of the, the tour de force uh, of Ulysses. Yeah. One thing um, that I was put in mind of um, concerning Ulysses, actually, while reading this, and this has to be said in the context of, you know, the the centenary celebrations that we've got at the moment. And so sort of yeah. a lot of people at the books are, are very steeped in Ulysses at the moment. But when you describe, well, you just talked about Raskolnikov's confusion. And part of that confusion seems to be from a, a sort of, what might be described as kind of dispersed consciousness in um, in St. Petersburg, like sort of things happening yeah. and coincidences and sort of the consciousness in a way being larger than the the person that it's they're supposed to embody it. And that, and this comes out from just having spent some time in the Lestragonians chapter of Ulysses, <laughs> yeah. uh, of just realizing that that was something which, you know, again, uh, Joyce employs very explicitly which already yeah. has its um, its seeds in uh, creating this element of confusion in St. Petersburg. Yeah, you know, the, just the importance of a city, uh, not just as a broad uh, idea, but the specific elements of the city were so crucial for Dostoevsky and would later become so crucial for Joyce. Mm -hmm. The fog of St. Petersburg was so atmospheric and so perfect for a murder story the winding streets, the um, the interior spaces of buildings, right? This mm -hmm. is very Dostoevsky. And there's a way in which, you know, the, there are a lot of these 
houses in the center of St. Petersburg, by the 1860s, they were being divided up so that people with lower and lower means could live in them. They were originally built for very wealthy people because uh, Peter, Peter the Great, had summoned the wealthiest people uh, from all over the empire to specifically live in St. Petersburg. They had to. But the needs that St. Petersburg uh, uh, had shifted as industrialization started to, to take hold and as the, the city got bigger and bigger. And so you get these large spaces that are divided and then subdivided. And then, so in order to walk to your uh, flat, you might have to pass through someone else's flat to get mm-hmm. there. There were doors within doors. There are communicating rooms. And it's this weird sense of confusion and smallness and darkness that uh, is very much a, a, a Dostoevskyan uh, uh, type space. So we can see it, you know, doubling back and shaping the, uh, the, the, the sensibility of his novels. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to uh, uh, make sure we spend a little bit of time with Raskolnikov um, himself, mm-hmm. yeah. um, because um, you said earlier that, of course, you know, Raskolnikov is not a facsimile um, for, for Lassenaire. Right. Right. Um, but he seems to be sort of in 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 your description of him, sort of a uh, sort of a compound character in a way for sort of elements of Lassenaire, elements of um, sort of other other murderers and other kind of um, thinkers uh, from um, from Dostoevsky's past. Mm-hmm. But yeah. also his name um, Raskolnikov is very very important here. This was not a this like the origins of this name. Uh, was not something I'd come across before before reading your book, but to sort of uh, very early on when when Dostoevsky is um, imprisoned in Siberia, you start talking about the the Raskolniks. Yes, this kind of so maybe you, just for our listeners who aren't familiar with this concept, perhaps you could uh, explain what a Raskolnik was and how that fed into the, yeah. the choice of name and, and the character of Raskolnikov. So the Raskolniks are schismatics. They're basically anyone who. Uh, was breaking away from the then modern Orthodox Church of Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were, you know, reforms at various points through Russian Orthodox history, and usually the Raskolniks were people who rejected those reforms. Uh, but because it was illegal to reject the state church, they were effectively people who were fleeing the church. They were fleeing the normal social order. A lot of Raskolniks ended up in Siberia voluntarily Mm -hmm. because they were trying to form communities that could live the way they wanted to live. A lot of the specific details uh, of Raskolnik religions are not very different from Russian Orthodoxy, uh, partly because the minutia of um, the celebration of the Mass, for example, or of the way that you should pray was very, very crucial to them. And I think one of the things that fascinated Dostoevsky when he was in, encountering Raskolniks was um, both their their drive, their moral drive, but also um, there's a pedantic quality to them, that they mm-hmm. care very, very much about very, very small things. And it's easy to see how they can go wrong with that, that they can place too much importance about whether or not you uh, make the sign of the cross with three fingers or two fingers, right? That was one of the differences. And uh, so he admired them. He admired their goodness, but could also see how how they were uh, potentially um, going astray or, or creating more problems for, for themselves, more problems than 
and necessary. So we can see that with, with Raskolnikov himself. He has good intentions, but he he it goes astray. Mm. Um, and concerning the thing I, I referenced earlier about the 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 ending of um, of the book, yeah. Um, now, I, sw- I think we can talk about it. I don't think. Yeah, no. The statute of limitations for spoilers. I think right, right. One hundred and seventy exactly. odd years is probably is probably okay. Yeah. I mean, Raskolnikov gets caught and he goes to Siberia. You mm. should you should know that like, that that the uh, we know. That Raskolnikov is the murderer. It's it's not a murder mystery. It's a thriller. Mm-hmm. The question is, how is he going to get caught? Yeah. And so the debate that you're talking about or referencing to, or maybe it's not really a debate, and I'm just making it a debate or pointing out another element of it, is that when Raskolnikov is in Siberia, he's found a love interest, and it's mm-hmm. really this love interest, Sonia, who is bringing him back to um, society in general. Right. Mm-hmm. He's no longer alone anymore. He's no longer you know, just stewing in his garret. He has someone to love, but it's very difficult for him to maintain that connection with someone. Mm-hmm. There's only one book that you're allowed to read in Siberia, and that book is the Bible. Mm-hmm. When Raskolnikov gets sent to Siberia, the same way that Dostoevsky got sent to Siberia, Sonia follows him out to Siberia. Sonia was the one who encourages him, urges him to confess. And he does confess, but even after he confesses, he's not actually remorseful about mm. what he's done. You know, when you see that confession, it's, it's a very uh, unsatisfying confession. And at no point at the end of the novel does Raskolnikov think about the two women that he's killed. That these mm. are two people whose lives that he's ended. He never, ever thinks about them. So to think that he's reformed at the end of the novel, I think, is wrong. The other thing that people assume is that he finds God at the end. Mm-hmm. And that's not technically true either. So he so this has... is an assumption I have lived with for 20 years since I first read the <laughs> right. read the book. And it was always one of my great disappointments in, in literature, <laughs> in a way, along right. with Don Quixote waking up at the end and saying, oh, I've been I've been doing some crazy things and then yeah. sort of repenting right. on his deathbed. Right. And so there was something. Um, yes, yeah, so yes, exactly. And I, I sort of now feel compelled to go back to the book uh, with the right. you know, under your impetus. <laughs> there are glimmers that Raskolnikov is going to change or that wants to change, but they are always side by side with um, backsliding and recalcitrance. Um, he has a, a Bible mm-hmm. with him, but he never opens it. Mm-hmm. And we think, oh, maybe he's he's about to open it. What we're supposed to see is Raskolnikov still at the nadir of his life, where mm-hmm. he has met this misfortune in Siberia, but is still not remorseful for what he's done where he has found uh, a love interest, but still resents her, resents her Mm -hmm. kindness. He lashes out against her, even while in Siberia. And uh, who thinks that maybe there's a way out for him with an idea of God or Mm -hmm. faith, but doesn't actually begin to exercise that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the possibility that Dostoevsky was keeping open was the sequel to Crime and Punishment. He was imagining that he might write another book that mm. would basically be Raskolnikov's long journey back into a society, mm. back into a community of, of children of God, the community of citizens. And 
it would take an entire novel to do that. It wasn't going to be just another added scene where he's he's happy again. Mm-hmm. So we need to see him at this downswing before we can make that long, arduous climb upward. Mm-hmm. And it would have you know it would have been a novel's uh, work of worth for that to happen. Mm-hmm. But what I guess is one crucial thing is that Raskolnikov lives, which we discover wasn't always necessarily the the plan for him um because you say like dostoevsky outlined raskolnikov's suicide um repeatedly yeah Yeah. he's you know uh there were a a few different endings that dostoevsky tried out and uh one of them was uh committing suicide Mm -hmm. and effectively what happens is that uh dostoevsky decided the novel just kept growing and growing under his hand and, you know, he originally thought it would just be about, you know, 90 or 100 pages, but it ends up being, I don't know, it's probably five to 600 pages in the end. Um, and what he does is he starts to split off some of Raskolnikov's self-destructive impulses and puts them uh, into another character named Svidrigailov, mm-hmm. who is this second villain in that pops up towards the end of Crime and Punishment. This structure of Crime and Punishment it's very bizarre, and uh, you know the appearance of uh, Svidrigailov is is um, uh, is a little bit unsettling, partly <laughs> because you think, oh well, we already have one villain or one villain slash hero, why do we need another one? And it's because he does want to save Raskolnikov in some way, but mm-hmm. he still wants to have a picture of complete uh, self destruction, someone mm-hmm. who has has gone beyond the pale, who has no feeling for anyone whatsoever and whose only possible end could be a suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, I did wonder when when reading it, because you talked about uh, Sonia um, as Raskolnikov's um, love interest, for, <laughs> for, what, for what of a better word. And in the process of writing, Dostoevsky himself falls in love. Yeah, um, right. and uh, and gets married. Now I know it's often it's you know it would be far too neat to say that there's sort of a a parallel between Sonia and Anna, yeah. who uh, who right. uh, would become Dostoevsky's wife. But did you get a sense that the the presence of this um, this this love in his life at a moment where he, he'd reached another nadir in his life, he was deeply indebted. He thought he was mm-hmm. going to be uh, essentially indebted to this this publisher for <laughs> for yeah. years and years and years and years. Do you get a sense that that there's a, sort of the, the burgeoning of this relationship did have an impact on the direction that he took crime and punishment and and where he concluded it? I think he had a sense of what the conclusion would be before uh, Anna effectively comes to his rescue. Mm-hmm. So Dostoevsky has to complete both Crime and Punishment and The Gambler mm-hmm. uh, in a very, very short amount of time. And the way for him to do that was to hire a stenographer. The stenographer who shows up at his door happens to be a beautiful young woman. He dictates The Gambler to her over the course of a month and then is so pleased with the results that he asks her to uh, continue working with him to finish Crime and Punishment. And she does. He dictates the end of Crime and Punishment to her and is, in the process, falls in love with her. They mm-hmm. fall in love with each other. And just a few weeks after Crime and Punishment is complete, they get married. So it was the first time that Dostoevsky had a a loving, committed relationship. He was married before. It was a bad marriage. They were both unhappy. It was a woman that he met in Siberia. But with Anna, his his second wife, uh, it, it they did love each other. They were quite devoted to one another. 
And I think he knew that in order for him to be happy, he needed to have a family the same way that he imagines Waskolnikov needing a family. Waskolnikov's father is gone. Um, he is away from his, his mother and sister. He's alone. He knows that family is the one thing, Dostoevsky knows, that family is the one thing that he's definitely missing in his life. And he was in his 40s at the time, and he felt that life slipping away from him. Mm -hmm. uh, but when he met Anna, he did have a family. And of course, his life wasn't happily ever after, mm -hmm. but he really wanted that. You know, he could write, Crime and Punishment was a huge success, but he could have written five novels that were great successes, uh, and he would have felt a sense of emptiness without, without mm -hmm. a family. Yeah. Kevin, there's so many more things uh, I'd like to talk about in this book, but I think that probably is all we've got time for. And that feels like a good place um, upon which to, to leave it. Um, of course, Sinner and the Saint is available from Shakespeare and Company, uh, from our bricks and mortar store, from our online store. Um, all that remains for me to say is, um, Kevin Birmingham, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Adam, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's uh, a pleasure to be with Shakespeare and Company, even if it's uh, only virtual. <laughs> thank you thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast if you've enjoyed this conversation it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to some of your friends and don't forget if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company you can subscribe now through Apple or Patreon for just three euros a month production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by our resident jazz supremo, Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. I'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.